0: I pray for anyone in the room that's here and maybe they've never even sung a song to you before or heard about you like they just did, that today would be a day that they'd move into a relationship with you, to know that there's a reckless love, there's a God who loves us that much, that he would come for us in our failures, he would come for us when we're his foe so we could be his friend. I pray that you would just touch each of us today, Jesus, that we would be open to what you want to say through this message today, but through the music and through the people around us, your Holy Spirit. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. That'd be awesome. So glad that you're with us today. I know it's a holiday weekend, and so just really glad that you're here, and I hope you had a good time with your family and friends as you got to celebrate. And so I just want to give a welcome uh, to you and anyone who's also watching us online today or later on as well. And what we're going to do this summer, just kind of, this is a whole setup for what we're going to do in the summer, is we're going to have a series that we're going to engage in together, we're going to go kind of line by line, section by section, section through a book in the New Testament It's called First Thessalonians First Thessalonians And so I'm going to ask everybody to grab your message notes they're Out of your program they look like this And you're going to be able to follow along And all the Bible verses will be here But I really want to encourage you to bring your Bible During this series so that you might actually Write something in it while you're here uh, And if you don't own a Bible We want to give you one And they are right, some right on the shelves as you leave today First Thessalonians You're wondering where that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John then we have Acts, then we have Romans, we have 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then we have the letters that Paul wrote, the epistles, and then we have the T-books, okay? It's Thessalonians, Timothy, and Titus. And so you can find that. It's a way to find it and be, you know, I want you to become familiar with this book as we engage together in this series. And the title of the series is called Hope Rising, and it's how to live between now and not yet. And we're going to set that up today as we look at what Paul was writing when he wrote to these Early followers of Jesus. But I thought what I would do today is I would begin just a little differently. And uh, I love wearing the bands that I wear on my arm here. I just, you know, they're starting to accumulate. And pretty soon I'm going to have them all the way up my arm here. <laughs> but I want to tell you what they mean. Uh, because I have people ask me what, why do you know, I wear these. And so I just want to help some of you know why I do this. Because it really is about the series about the now and the not yet. These represent the now with the hope and the prayers and the faith in what God's going to do in the future. So this first one is a blue one. And we gave these out to her entire church family during the summer before the election season in 2016. And I was just thinking, okay, how are we going to respond to the vitriolity and the anger and all the stuff that we're seeing as we approach this election season and knew it was going to get stronger And I said, well, I know how I want to respond, and I want to respond as the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Holy Spirit, you work. And so we called the series Stand Out, and we walked through the fruits of the Spirit, and we said, this is how we're going to treat people. This is who Twin Cities Church is going to be. This is what we want to be known for. And so that's what the blue band means. This next one, this multicolored band, uh, this uh, represents uh, a dear friend in our church um, whose son committed suicide one year ago this month. And so they gave out these bands and uh, one of his son's slogans was uh, is on here. Something like party on, dude, or something like that, yeah. And so um, I just I love this and I wear this just to remind this dad that I'll not, I'm not going to forget and I'm going to pray for his son as they're in this now and uh, definitely not into, in going into a future that they don't want without him. But they live now, but they still have a hope and a not yet. And that's why we saw him singing up here today. And this last one is the green one. And this one is for a friend uh, in our church who uh, found out that he had esophageal cancer. And so he started a chemo uh, this spring. And his community group did this. They made these bands up, and they put them on so they'd remember to pray for him as he went through the chemo treatments for his esophageal cancer. And uh, it says on this, God's in charge. And so that was the way that they were going to remember to pray, and they committed together to do that. And uh, he's finished with his chemo, and now on the other side of chemo is found out that he's uh, said he's cancer-free. And so wow. we're just celebrating that, and that result of that and pray that goes on. Uh, but then also, in the same time period, I have another friend whose 15-year-old son uh, was diagnosed with testicular cancer. And so he's going through a really, went through a really brutal chemo uh, treatment plan. And so um, I put this on, I kept this on to say, I'm going to be praying for his son and, and for her son. And just recently uh, they showed online that uh, his report has come back and he has now been called cancer free too. And so it's just a beautiful thing. Uh, but I just wanted you to know, uh, I, these, these create a lot of conversations with people as I go through my world and my life. People ask me what it means, and so I just wanted you to know what it means because they all represent a now. They all represent a now that in almost every case here, we don't want to be in, uh, but they also represent a hope that God's in charge and that there's a future, that he's, in, that he's going to be able to take care of me, and I'm going to be able to lean into him. And so let's just talk about that as we look into the, uh, this series that we're going to start today about First Thessalonians. Well, today's basically an intro. So I'm so glad that you're here today. If you're from out of town, I want to encourage you that you would go home. You might watch us online and hang with us through this series. If you know someone who isn't here today, they're going to want to watch this because we're going to be in this all summer long. And so the intro really helps us to know exactly where it is that we're going. And right at the top of your notes there, there's some verses that he begins with in verses one and two. So we're going to talk about context for a little bit. We're going to talk about why this is being written, and uh, it's exciting stuff, and it's important stuff for us to be able to know as we go through this. The first two verses, he begins this way, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So this is the A-team, okay, of the Christian movement, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And so they are coming together, and they are together collaborating to write this letter. And so we, but we attribute it mostly to Paul. And then who's it written to? To the Church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that God's in charge and that we know that we have access and relationship with Him and His love through Jesus Christ. And then He says, grace and peace to you. And so this is a combination of the Greek greeting of grace and then the Hebrew greeting of shalom and peace. And so he combines those together to say, I'm writing to you, church, and I'm praying that you experience more deeply God's grace and you more fully his peace, that nothing's broken, nothing missing, everything as it ought to be. So he's talking about that there. So First of all, I just want to say that Paul's the author and that in collaboration, though, with Silas and with Timothy. Second, the recipients of the letter are the Thessalonians. Now, because of the week, the holiday, the way it was, you know, I had to have these done, my notes done early and then kind of had a brain dump as I got back. To I, I was supposed to have a map up here today to show you. Don't have that. So sorry for that. You have to use your imagination with me. Next week, I'll bring a map and just kind of refer back to a little bit of what's going on. But it's called Thessalonica. Uh, some call it Thessaloniki. That's what it's called today. And others call it Thessalonica. And so there's different ways that it's actually referred to, but it's an important coastal city. So you kind of can picture it's, it's, there's a, there's a, Greece goes up, Macedonia, and then Thessalonica is right here because right there, that's where it would happen to be. And so it's integral to the economy of the day. So it's a coastal city. It's a place of influence and affluence, affluence and influence. It was diverse. It was made up from people of all segments of life because it was a major transportation hub. People were coming and going from all different nations and coming there from all different parts of life. It was part of northern Greece. They call it Macedonia. It was on also not only a a port town, a coastal town, but it was on the ancient Roman road, the Via Ignatia. So pretty much... Everyone in the world, if they're going to travel to Asia or Africa, they would end up going through this region either by road or foot or by boat. And so it was a major melting pot for peoples, much like San Francisco, much like San Francisco would be, because it was on bay, It was also a port city. And pretty much everyone who traveled, they had to, ended up going through Thessalonica. So it's an important hub and it's an important place for the Christian gospel to start. So we first learned about Thessalonica. Thessalonica or Thessalonica in the New Testament book of Acts. And so I want to encourage you that you might want to read Acts uh, 16 and 17 because it talks about the time that Paul was in this place. He was on his... Paul had three missionary journeys. This is his second missionary journey. And so on his second missionary journey, he makes his way to Thessalonica. And as he's going on this journey, he's picked out where he thinks that they should be going. And in the middle of the night, he has a dream or a vision and as part of that dream or vision, there's a man calling out. And that man calls out to him and says, come help us in Macedonia. Come help us in Macedonia. And Paul, he's always open for an adventure if you read much about him. Uh, he said, okay, we're, you know, we're going to go. The Lord's guiding us a different way. The Holy Spirit's guiding us in this direction. So we're going to listen to the Holy Spirit. And we're going to go there because of this vision. So his team of people... And we know that the team existed of Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Even though Luke's not mentioned, Luke was the scribe. He was the one who was taking notes of the journey. And so he went along on Paul's missionary journeys. And so as they left there uh, to go up into Macedonia, as they move into this region, the first stop was in a city called Philippi. And so we know that there's a book called Philippians. Well, what happened in Philippi is Paul went and he looked for a place where he could teach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews. He would always look for a synagogue where he could go and teach. And so he ends up finding a woman who's by a river, and her name is Lydia. And he shares with Lydia the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's the Messiah that they've been waiting on, and they've been looking forward to coming. And then at that moment, she says, I want to know that Messiah too. And she becomes a first follower of Jesus Christ in Philippi, and she was actually the start or the hub of the church that was planted there. Read on in Philippi, you learn that there were some struggles. Actually, Paul and Silas were thrown into jail, the Philippian jailer, where they were singing in the night, and they were actually let go. And But as they were let go, they were warned that they needed to get out of town. So they left there, and they left Philippi. And so they went onward, and they stopped in Thessalonica because it was such a key city. So he went to the synagogue again. He was looking for a place where he could share, and he could talk. And he's sharing with them about... Jesus Christ. And now he's the answer to the questions that are brought up in the Old Testament about the Messiah and who will it be and when will he come? And he's saying, Jesus is the one. So he taught there, the scriptures say in Acts 17, he taught there for three weeks in a row. Now, three weeks in a row, he went in and he taught about Jesus. And what happened is every time he taught, a few people said, wow, Holy Spirit's moving. They said, wow, I think I want to know this Jesus. And so a nucleus was formed. A new church was beginning to be formed in this place called Thessalonica. And then what happened is, is that Paul started meeting with this group of people. We don't know how long Paul was there. Some say as much as three months. He had three times to teach and then maybe three months to teach off the record or with the people. And then because of the fact that they were teaching that there's another God besides Caesar... Uh, that they were run They were basically had to leave town For fear of their lives And so they were escorted out By these early followers of Jesus After just hearing three messages And then some personal teaching For about two or three months So that's all that they had In a way of knowledge As Paul left And he went on So he leaves there He goes through Berea And then he ends up in Corinth. And so Corinth is where he spent a lot of time. So now he's in Corinth, and they're starting a church in Corinth. And as they're starting this church there, people are coming to know Jesus. But he begins to think about the Thessalonians. What about them? How are they doing? And so as he was thinking about them, he's going, I want to know. So he says, Timothy, why don't you go back To Thessalonica and why don't you check on them and see how they're doing And so Timothy went and he came back and he came back with a favorable report about how the church was faring but he also came back and said you know what Paul they also have some questions can you imagine that you've only had three sermons and then you've had just a couple of months of training and now you're the church and you know, I what about this? What's going on? So they had some questions, and so Timothy brought back the questions to them. And so this letter is Paul's response. This letter is Paul's response to how things are going. He's really encouraged about how the Holy Spirit's working in the Thessalonians, but also he wants to answer their questions. So it was written somewhere around 50 to 51 AD, and we know from history that Jesus Christ was crucified around 33 AD. So we're talking about 17 to 18 years after Jesus died. Just 17 or 18 years. This church is, is in, in er, the Christian Christian movement is, is in infancy at this time. And as far as we know, this was the earliest Christian document written. And it describes the kinds of things that these early followers of Jesus were thinking about, were going through, were dealing with, especially when, as they were facing persecution uh, from their culture. For claiming the name of Jesus. So this letter was written to give hope to those who were living in a culture that stands against faith in Jesus. Someone's had to set in. It was written to give hope to those who were living in a culture that stands against the faith of Jesus. And I don't know if you noticed. I don't know if you've been paying attention here. But our culture is getting increasingly hostile to those who teach that Jesus is the way that Jesus is the only way and that we must submit to what this book says as our authority for life. Our culture is getting increasingly hostile to anyone who wants to claim that or to teach that. And so first lesson only is written to ground the people in the truths of the Christian faith. It was also written, and I'm going to cover this at the end of my time today, it was also written to encourage them that The now is not the end, but there's a not yet that they can live for, and they knew that Jesus was coming again, and so we wrote to encourage them and gave them some details about Jesus' second coming. Folks, Jesus is coming back, and that was the encouragement for them. Jesus is returning. He's coming back, and that's the hope we can also have in our lives. See, it was written to answer questions, but how do we live right now? How do we live in a time between now and the fact that Jesus is coming again? Especially, we've gone all these years, centuries, and he's not come. How are we to live? In fact, we're going to look at this in this series. We're going to find out there were actually people who thought he was coming now, and so they actually didn't do anything. They just sat around and waited. And Paul's saying, that's not the way you live between now and now. And not yet either. So it was written to instruct them on how to live between today, the now that we live in, the struggles that we face, and the day that Jesus returned, the not yet. How do we live between those times? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read some more verses now to give us even more context. These are the theme verses. This is what Mark read to us just a moment ago. It says this, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. I want to pause there. So he's just making a comment here that I know that you're going through struggles. I know that you're facing this severe suffering, which was persecution for claiming the name of Christ as they were asking people to give up idols. There was a big deal about the idols that they were giving up and that it really impacted business and the economy of Thessalonica because they were moving out of that industry and they were robbing the shop owners of idols. people who would purchase these idols. so And they were standing against that. And I'll say also severe uh, persecution because, as I said a moment ago, because they were claiming Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus is the Lord, and there's only one Lord there, and that's the, the um, brain dead. Yeah, yeah, it's the Caesar. Only one there. And so this church was facing this strong opposition and severe persecution for their faith. And it goes on to say this. And in the midst of service, severe suffering, and this is what I think, here we are in the midst of what could be the roughest time of their life with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about how we can experience that as well. Joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model, underline that, model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, things were tough, and yet, as we just sing about, there's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the Holy Spirit. They lived in such a way that they were actually becoming a model that others were hearing about and knowing about, a model church for how to live with hope in spite of suffering. This church was so healthy that it became known all over the region and the world, and now for all time, as a model church. So I was thinking about that, thinking about model church, and how, you know, our goal always from the very beginning of our church was that we could be a healthy church, We never had any number goals, or we didn't want to be a big church. We always wanted to be a healthy church, because we knew that a healthy church could be one that people would want to be part of, and it could actually have influence all over our community, and maybe even the world. So I just think, how cool would it be if a modern-day investigator or writer would come to Grass Valley and interview us? interview us as those members who are part of this church and those leaders who are part of this church, and then write about it and write about our faith and write about our lives. And then say this somewhere in the article that she might say, this is a model church. How cool would that be? This is a model church. You are model followers of Jesus Christ. And folks, I just say that, that, that's what God wants us to be. He wants us to be a healthy church. It's only as, a, as we're healthy that we're able to become the kind of model he wants us to be. He goes on to say this, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. So underline always and continually, always and continually. So Paul was constantly in prayer. And you think, because uh, we're going to look at that, he's going to call us to prayer again in this book constantly in prayer, and so you're thinking, well, how do I be in prayer constantly? And, you know, so you just think about, well, those that you're concerned about, you think about. Those you're concerned about, you think about. So he's constantly in prayer and mentioned them. So I just say this. Paul is the apostle of gratitude. He's the apostle of gratitude. For Paul, gratitude was an ongoing habit of grace. It was something that he expressed regularly. And he encourages us more than any other New Testament writer to be people of gratitude. People who look for what God is doing, look for what's right in the world, and to thank God that we get to experience that in our lives. And I said, maybe this is part of why Paul had such a huge impact in the world for Jesus Christ. Paul was a man who, even in difficulty, could always find a reason to express gratitude. That's a challenge for me. Even in the middle of difficulty, he could find a reason to express gratitude. At the same time, he was committed to praying for God's work to expand in the world. So you think about it. Gratitude is when I look at what is right and I express thanksgiving to God for what is right. Prayer, on the other hand, is when I look at what is wrong and I ask God to make it right. So the difference there. So he's expressing continual gratitude and continual prayer. Gratitude for what is right and prayer for what is wrong that God would make that Right. I had someone ask me to pray right after the service, in the first service today, and who's here and visiting in town and here because they need, they want to be healed, and they want to be healed of addiction. And so we prayed that God would work in that way that that person would be able to know Jesus in the fullest way and to know His healing. So we prayed that what is wrong would be made right. I'm just thinking about that. I want to be more like that. Do you want to be more like that? You want to be people that you look at, instead of looking at what is wrong with the world so much, which we can do so well, is that we look at what is right with the world, and as we look at what's right in the world, that we can express gratitude for what is right in the world, but at the same time we notice what is wrong with the world, but instead of pointing out what's wrong in the world, instead of, you know... Being mean to people for what's wrong What they're doing that we think is wrong Instead of worrying about what's wrong in the world That we pray for what's wrong in the world Asking God to make it right I want to be more like that And I want our church to be more like that as well So after he expresses gratitude and assures him he's praying He goes on to say this We remember before our God and Father Your work produced by What? Okay, Your work produced by Thank you Your labor prompted by And your endurance inspired by in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what Paul's saying. There are three things that stand out about you. There's three things. Here are these th- you are known for these three things. And I want to talk about these three things. And how when we experience these three things. We can also have a hope that thrives. And that we can live in agreement with the Holy Spirit. And what he's doing in the world. And what he wants to do through us. Three things that I'm grateful for. He says. Three things I pray are going to grow more within you. Your work produced by faith, your love prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Here's what Warren Wiersbe says about this. He has a commentary called Be Ready, and Warren Wiersbe actually went to heaven this year, and he wrote a series of commentaries, all had be at the beginning, be something, be something, be something, and this one's called Be Ready. He says this, faith, hope, and love are the three cardinal virtues of the Christian life and the three greatest Evidences of salvation. So if you want to know, you really want to know, do I know Jesus Christ? You just look at your life and you'd ask Holy Spirit to show me, do I I have faith? Am I growing in love? And how am I doing with hope? Because those are evidences that you know Jesus Christ and that you trust in him. So faith, that's based on what God has done in the past when Jesus went to the cross and then as you looked at his... The history of his people, we learn so much about who God is from how he interacted with his people all through the Old Testament and into the New Testament based upon what Jesus has done in the past and then what Jesus did on the cross for us. That's faith. It's displayed in the present. My faith is displayed through love. So I'm prompted by my faith to love and to love in such a way that others receive it. And it's all connected to what Jesus is going to do in the not yet And the hope I have that he's coming again. So he gives us three keys. I'm just going to walk through this. Three keys for how we can have a thriving hope. For how our hope can be fueled. And the first one is this. A thriving hope is fueled by a supernatural faith. By a supernatural faith. So when we have faith, we're saying we believe that God is who he says he is. And God can do what he says he can do. And that we're going to base our lives on that. And it's a supernatural experience we're having with Holy Spirit in our life. Your work produced by faith. Let me just talk about that. Let's just talk a little bit. Work. You know, we're all familiar with work, right? So many of you have a long holiday weekend and you didn't go to work, and uh, but work has three meanings. Okay, I don't know if you want to write these down somewhere so you can think about them later, but three meanings. So the first meaning of work is my job. So I have a job I go to work at. So that's the first meaning of work. is It's what I do to earn income, what I do to make a difference, what I do to have purpose in the world. The second way the word work is used in the New Testament is an act of compassion in the face of injustice. An act of compassion in the face of injustice. So that's work. So work would be when I see the... Uh, the underprivileged, when I see the under-resourced, when I see those who are, I have no voice, uh, when I see those who are being oppressed in some way, when I see needs, and I reach out with compassion to address the injustice I'm seeing, that's work. And then the third way that work is used in the New Testament is to talk about the gospel work. So the work of sharing Jesus Christ with my world. So when he says that you have a work that's produced by faith, he's saying that's the work he's talking about here is your job. He's talking about the fact that you have this job that you're called to go do. He says, and also he's called us to be his salt and light, and his hands and feet in the world, and that we would be people who want to right and justice, and so we'd be part of that. And then lastly, that we would also be people who want to share the love of Jesus Christ so that others could know him. So that is... Work. And he's saying that faith in Jesus that's living is expressed in those three ways. So when you go to work tomorrow and you get back into the work week. What you need to realize is whether you're a carpenter, an accountant, whether you fix hair, or whether you're a barista, or whether you're a mechanic, or whether you fly across the country for a living, for your job, or whatever it is that you do as a doctor or a nurse, you need to, that is work that you're going to do. But it's work in the name of Jesus Christ. It's your purpose he's called you to do in that place. It also means when you see injustices in the world, that you're willing to, by faith, engage because you know he's called you to do that. And then lastly, we've all been called to be sharers of the gospel wherever we go so that others can know him. Now, I just want to say this right now because some of us get all squirrely when I use the word work, especially at church, because here's what you're feeling right now. You're feeling right now, is okay, just another, Ron, you're just coming here, just another uh, do more, do more, do more message. It's not, folks. It's not. Those are three areas of life that God has called us to have an influence in. But we don't do this work in order to appease God. We do this work because of the next point we're going to look at in a minute, and I'm not going to mention it before we even get there, because of the love we've experienced because the reckless love of God came after us. And we want other people to know that same reckless love ourselves. We do that. It's not to appease God, but it's done because of what Jesus God's done for us through Jesus Christ. It's not work that we do to get faith. It's work that's fueled or energized by the faith we have. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord... Three areas, work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not vain. So I read this quote this week that might help some of us as we think about our aversion to this word work. Here we go. Faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. Faith alone saves. So it's not that I'm working to try to earn favor or learn or earn approval by the place I go to and that's called church, but I work because I have faith. Faith must express itself and it will supernaturally as the Holy Spirit works in me and through me. Okay, the second idea that I just mentioned. Thriving hope is fueled by a sacrificial love. So it's fueled when you exercise the love that you've experienced, and now you give away through sacrificial or selfless love. Now, the word love there is the most comprehensive word for love that there is, that the Greeks had, that the New Testament was written in. It's the word agape. And so when you have the word agape, you know that that means it's it's an unconditional kind of love uh, that is sacrificial in nature, that looks at those who don't deserve it, and gives it. They don't deserve it, but we give it. We go to help them. They don't deserve that love, but we sacrificially give that love. And then the word labor. So we're going to sacrificially love, okay? But that word labor, he's raising the ante here, okay? It's going to raise. So work was, I'm going to do these three things and I'm going to do it supernaturally. The Holy Spirit's going to do it through me. And it's going to be easier because I have the Holy Spirit doing it. But now all of a sudden he uses a different word here and he uses the word labor. That word labor is not, it's not casual effort. I can't coast into this. It's sweaty, hard, difficult, intense, childbearing labor, okay? That's what it is for ladies who've had that experience. That's the kind of labor he's talking about here that we'd be engaged in sharing the love of jesus with that kind of intensity i had a friend who was telling me that yesterday or the last weekend for three straight days uh, that he was digging footings for a deck that he's building and so he had to have a hammer that he took out there and he had to you know hammer 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 ah, ah, for hours and then he got about an inch of rock out and he was exhausted That's what we're talking about here is people who are willing to labor because the world needs to know God's love. But you know what? That's not attainable for the long term either, unless we are receiving love from Him. And look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, For Christ's love compels us. Why do I do this? Because his love, the love I've experienced from him, the sacrificial love, the selfless love, and we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Our work and our labor must be fueled by love, must be fueled by love, and that's how it's going to be effective, and that's how we're going to be able to sustain that as we go through life. Mother Teresa, she was just an example I thought of of someone who worked out of love, uh, sacrificial love, and I have a quote here um, that she gave one time. She says, I try to give to the poor people for love what the rich could get for money. I try to give to the poor people for love what the rich people could get for money. No, I wouldn't touch a leper for a thousand pounds. Yet I willingly cure him for the love of God. Another time she was being interviewed by a reporter, a journalist, and he said to her, Mother Teresa, pulling dying people out of the sewers? I wouldn't do that for all the money in the world. And Mother Teresa looked, her, looked picked her head up and said, Neither would I. I wouldn't either. But I do it out of love. Love was her driving motivation. It was the love she received from Jesus and the love that she was giving from Jesus. And the last thing is this. Thriving hope is fueled by a steadfast hope. Three words. Steadfast hope. We have faith, we have love, and we have hope. And he says this. Your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. I just want to kind of tell you what steadfast means as we walk through this. Steadfast is a dogged, unflinching, I won't give up mindset that's inspired by hope and what's to come. Unflinching mindset that is inspired by this mindset. I've been inspired by love. Love is what is inspiring me to be steadfast, to persevere in the face of trials and temptations, which he's calling them to do. They were facing all these severe sufferings that they were going through to endure in the face of opposition or difficulty. That's steadfast hope. Steadfast hope. The fuel for steadfastness, steadfastness is the hope you've placed in Jesus Christ. So when I think about steadfast hope, I think about this, um, the statue out at the fairgrounds of the horse, you know. And it's just so beautiful. Uh, the Clydesdale. I love Clydesdales. But you look at that Statue and it's got this pulling forward, this pulling forward. And when I look at that, from now on, based upon what I'm thinking about today, I'm going to look at that steadfast hope. Pulling, pulling, not giving up under the power of the Holy Spirit to persevere in the face of difficulty, in the face of the things that are going on around me that are difficult and hard. Romans 5 says this. It says, We also glory in our sufferings, Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So thriving hope is formed in the crucible of the fire of life. That's how thriving hope is formed. It's formed through difficulty and depression and disappointment and doubt. It's a hope that's been pounded out on the fires of the anvil of life in the time between now and not yet. That's how a thriving hope is formed. It's a hope that believes even when things don't appear to make sense that God is in charge. God is in control. He is sovereign. He has a plan, and his plan will never be thwarted. Okay, It's these three ingredients. Brother Lawrence has a quote that's attributed to him, and he says this, Many things are possible for the person who has hope. Even more is possible for the person who has faith. And still more is possible for the person who knows how to love. But everything is possible for the person who practices all three virtues. Supernatural work done in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sacrificial love done in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Steadfast hope holding on in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of it all. Jesus is the center of our hope. So I want to end with this verse here from 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm going to come back and cover it next week. But it says this, For we know, dear brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has, circle this, unchosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power... With the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. That's what I'm asking for today for us. Comes with power, the Holy Spirit, and deep convictions. And so here's the bottom line. Thriving hope rises out of a person who is motivated by grace. Not law or legalism. Not religion. Not duty. Not even inspiration. Because no feelings run out, folks. Not even inspiration, but motivated by grace, the grace he gives. So, the not yet. All throughout the book of First Thessalonians, Paul does something that's, I think, strategic. So it's divided into five chapters in the New Testament Bibles we have today. And at the end of every single chapter, Paul makes a reference to the not yet. He makes a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I just want to read those to us. You just listen with me. Pay attention to what he says about the second coming, the not yet. Chapter 1, he says this. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Chapter 2, he says this. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Chapter 3, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with his holy ones. Chapter 4, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the, with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we are still alive and are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll be with the Lord forever. The not yet. I love that. And then chapter five, he ends it this way. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The not yet is that Jesus Christ is coming again. The not yet is that he will come again. And when he comes again, he will wipe away every tear. When he comes again, he will make everything new. When he comes again, he will restore creation. When he comes again, he will bring us into the Father's kingdom in the real, in the now. That will be our now then. We will live with him forever. And I look at that and I think when we get to that place, there will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more abuse. There will be no more rape. There will be no more injustice. There will be lots of generosity. There will be lots of love. There will be lots of faith. There will be lots of hope available for all people to enjoy for all time. That is the not yet. And we live in the now right now, and he's called us as his people to live with a faith that works, a faith that works, a labor of love that's prompted by love and with a steadfastness of hope. And when we live like that, I believe we can be a model church and model people together. Will you bow your heads and let's pray together? God, I want to thank you so much for uh, Paul, first of all, and his tenacity, his love, who you made him to be. And I know that some people would think he's harsh at times, but Lord, he was strong. And I just thank you for his willingness to serve you and go on these missionary journeys and you've made everything right. It fit at just the right time for him to be able to spread the gospel, the message of Jesus to the world. And so as we go through this book together, I pray that you would inspire us, Father, that you would help us to have a hope inside of us, that even when we look at the difficulties of life, that we will be people who choose to see what's right with the world. We'll be choose to people that give thanks for what we see that's good, that we will be people that trust you. And that God, when we do see wrong, we won't point it out. God, we see wrong. We won't yell at others or scream at them because they're not right. Instead, we will pray to you that you will make it right, God. Help us to be that kind of people. I pray for us now as we go to work tomorrow that you would help us to remember that that work is a place for us to express the gifts you've given us, the purpose you've made us for, and help us to remember that work is never meaningless. Help us to remember that there's also a work that you call us to, to right and justice. And Lord, I know that you've called some of us to be activated in that, and that others of us, you've called to support that. Others of us, you've called to give to that. But God, I pray that you would help us to be prompted by love to fight injustice. And then lastly, God, I pray that you would help us to be bearers of the gospel of the good news of Jesus. We'd look for opportunities to have witness to you, to our world about you, God. We thank you so much. In the power of the Holy Spirit. In humility. Trust. I pray that you would help us to love each other in the now. Encourage each other. Walk alongside each other. To help each other to make it. To the end of our days. And if you come before that, to that day. When we can be with you.